0: This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T E R M I N I X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, I was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot conspiracy. On November 24, 1934, a slim-figured, hunchbacked man sat before the Special Committee on Un-American Activities. They were an investigative panel that operated as part of the House of Representatives. The man's name was General Smedley Butler, and he had information the committee needed to hear butler began his two-hour testimony by
2: stating that his interest had always been to maintain democracy in the united states but the testimony that followed left the committee in complete
0: disbelief butler claimed he was recruited by a member of the american legion gerald mcguire to enact a plan and not just any plan mcguire wanted to stage a fascist coup overthrow the president of the United States of America and his administration.
2: In the end, the committee determined Butler's testimony had no credibility. The simple version is that Butler was lying.
0: But some people can't help but wonder if the US government went to great lengths to prevent the evidence for Butler's testimony from ever seeing the light of day.
2: You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Parcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar.
0: At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
2: This is our first episode on The Business Plot. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal programs and policies sought to revitalize the United States following the Great Depression. But there were those
0: that feared his politics verged on socialism. According to General Smedley Butler, that fear led to a fascist plot to overthrow the Roosevelt administration.
2: This episode, we'll explore the factors that contributed to America's Great Depression and how Roosevelt's policies turned the economy back around. We'll also recount in detail Butler's shocking testimony to the Special Committee on Un-American Activities on November 24, 1934.
0: Next week, we'll dive even deeper into his claims before exploring the truth behind our one and only conspiracy theory. That butler was telling the truth about a plot to overthrow the president. And the government tried to cover it up.
2: On October 24, 1929, the New York stock market crashed. What followed has become known as the Great Depression.
0: It's difficult to pinpoint exactly when the American Great Depression was set into motion, But many researchers, like the National Bureau of Economic Research, have attributed its start to other countries abandoning the gold standard during World War I. The gold standard
2: is a currency system where the value of every fixed monetary unit, like, say, a dollar, is reinforced by real, physical gold. Nations that honor the gold standard have a fixed exchange rate between each other. The problem is, it only allows for small increases to value.
0: During World War I, a few European countries started creating paper currency that wasn't backed by gold, hoping that its value might increase faster.
2: By having more money in circulation, they believed it would help their country's economy get back on its feet. These nations had every intention of returning to the gold standard once they were able to, But what they didn't account for was the impact it would have on inflation, especially in regard to the prices of imports and exports, which had a major effect on the United States economy.
0: At the end of World War I, the United States economy was booming. Unemployment was as low as 1.4%. As people used their wealth to buy more goods, like cars, home appliances, and radios, thousands of new jobs were created— And they were created just in time for veterans to come home to work.
2: Then, in 1924, Congress passed the World War Adjusted Compensation Act, also known as the Bonus Act. It allowed veterans who served in World War I to collect bonuses for wages lost while serving in the war.
0: The catch was, these payouts wouldn't be made available until the day of the veteran's birthday in 1945. If they were to die before that year, the funds would be given to their estate. But with a new and booming economy, there weren't many who complained. And with a promise of cash on the horizon, taking out a loan in the present didn't seem like much of a risk.
2: In addition to this, it's important to note that the U.S. was among the few nations who had remained on the gold standard through World War I, which meant that people kept their investments in American banks.
0: As a result, the banks were wealthy enough to give out credit lines to the everyday person, but they were given out perhaps more freely than they should have been and with high interest. In essence, borrowed money flooded the economy and made it appear healthy, But behind the scenes, debt was on the rise.
2: Meanwhile, countries who had backed off the gold standard during the Great War were now trying to return to it, but finding it hard with their war debts and rising interest rates. And at the end of the 1920s, the debt bubble burst, leading to
0: the worst economic disaster
2: in U.S. history.
0: President Herbert Hoover took office in 1929, just as the economic downfall began. He enacted certain laws and policies that played a role in relief efforts, like launching public works programs and increasing federal subsidies for farmers. As a Republican, he believed in limiting the federal government's power, but that led him to being blamed for not doing enough.
2: Many people, especially veterans, viewed Hoover's limited power stance as a blatant disregard for the turmoil happening in the country. He wasn't doing enough. They had just risked their lives for the well being of their country during World War I. Returning home to a job was the least they should expect.
0: By the end of October 1929, millions of stock shares were sold off in an effort to get out of a crippling market. Then on October 24th, a day that would become known as Black Thursday, the stock market finally failed.
2: As a result, people started spending less money and hoarding their gold. The decline in consumerism meant less production. Less production led to decreased wages and increased layoffs. At the height of the Great Depression, nearly 25% of American workers were unemployed. For context, The unemployment rate in October 2009, during the recession, was 10%. In December 2019, it was 3.5%. From 1930 to
0: 1932, American banks were failing. People began removing their money and demanding cash. The problem was that banks who operated outside of the Federal Reserve didn't have the funds to liquidate every account.
2: And veterans were hit particularly hard. They soon began to realize that they probably weren't going to get the money they were promised from the Bonus Act. But now is when they needed it most. They were left feeling defeated and angry, resentful of the same country they had just risked their lives for.
0: Then, on June 15, 1932... The Senate rejected the Wright-Patman bonus bill that would have delivered certificates guaranteeing that bonuses to veterans would be redeemable in 1945. The post-war promise no longer looked like a guarantee. Veterans felt like they'd been robbed. So 20,000 of them organized a march on Washington. They called themselves the Bonus Army, and they demanded immediate payment of the money they were promised.
2: They refused to leave D.C. until they were paid, but morale was low and tensions were high. James Van Zandt, the head of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, and Walter W. Waters, the Bonus Army Commander, needed a way to prevent an outbreak of violence.
0: They decided to invite Major General Smedley Darlington Butler to the camps. The 51-year-old Marine had served in the Spanish-American War, the Philippine-American War, and World War I. He had received medals for courage, skill, bravery, and leadership. They figured that his presence might give the men hope.
2: When Butler arrived in DC in July, there were thousands of veterans camping in tents and shacks alongside the Anacostia River. He spent the night talking one-on-one with many of them. He learned their food and supplies were running dangerously low. Though they were on the brink of a riot, Butler encouraged them to practice peaceful protest.
0: He told them, they may be calling you tramps now, but in 1917, they didn't call you bums. If you slip over into lawlessness of any kind, you will lose the sympathy of 120 million people in the nation.
2: Ironically, it was President Hoover who slipped into lawlessness first. On July 28th, He ordered the U.S. Army to expel the Bonus Army. Hoover's troops descended on the camps and shanties, burning veterans' tents and all of their belongings. They were trying to force them out of Washington.
0: Horrified, Butler began calling politicians and asking them to show support for veterans. The Democratic governor of New York, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, agreed to help in any way he could. In fact, later that year, FDR ran for president on the promise of hope for veterans and American citizens alike.
2: His signature plan, New Deal for the American People, proposed a distribution of wealth that put the people first. It also tried to adapt existing policies to meet the needs of the time. FDR defeated Hoover in a landslide victory.
0: On March 4, 1933, on the day of his inauguration, Roosevelt declared, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself.
2: And after years of turbulence, Roosevelt's New Deal seemed like it might just eliminate Americans' fears. His first hundred days in office were legendary. He urged people to put their savings back into the banks, and they listened. By the end of his first month, nearly three-fourths of American funds were returned.
0: He passed a wide variety of laws through Congress, all designed to restore the country to its former glory. And for the first time in history, the United States abandoned the gold standard. Roosevelt believed that more paper money in circulation would jumpstart the United States economy and get them out of the depression.
2: Many Americans commended Roosevelt's swift action, but not everyone. In particular, some members of the upper classes feared his politics were too progressive. They likened his programs and policies to socialism. But if they were going to do anything about it, they needed a man capable of gaining a lot of support in a short amount of time. They needed General Butler.
0: Coming up, That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
0: the Great Depression was in full swing and his New Deal programs were attracting a lot of attention. Most of that attention was positive, but some people felt that his plans for the American economy erred on the side of socialism. And according to one man, that was enough for a group of wealthy elites to try and get rid of him. Before we go any farther, we want to mention that the events we're about to recount are based on the testimony of that man, General Smedley Butler, and Butler alone. The United States Congress heard the story and determined it was uncredible. Nevertheless, here's the story he told.
2: On July 1st, 1933, General Butler received a phone call at his home in Philadelphia.
0: It was a representative from the American Legion, a veterans organization aimed at providing support to World War I veterans. It's important to note that, at the time, there were those who believed the organization had ties to big business and anti-labor sentiments, both of which would have seemingly defied the men and women the American Legion represented. Butler was one of those people. The
2: caller informed Butler that there were two men on their way from Connecticut to meet with him. They only asked for a couple hours of his time. Calls like these were common for Butler. He often spent his days in meetings with fellow veterans who just needed someone who would listen and empathize.
0: But Butler was shocked when a limousine pulled up in front of his home. The men inside introduced themselves as Bill Doyle, the commander of the American Legion in Massachusetts, and Jerry Maguire, the commander in Connecticut.
2: Butler invited them inside for refreshments and conversation. Once situated, Maguire got right down to business. He told Butler that the Legionnaires were unhappy with the current administration and they would like Butler's help removing President Roosevelt and his supporters from office.
0: Butler was skeptical. His pre-established fear of the American Legion's relationship with big business interests immediately raised a red flag. But he heard them out.
2: Doyle and McGuire explained that they wanted Butler to attend the American Legion convention in Chicago in October. Not only attend, but be a speaker and deliver a boisterous speech to rally attendees around one message, get rid of the leaders of the American Legion and return to the gold standard.
0: Butler declined. He had no interest in getting into bed with the politics of the Legion or being a talking head for someone else's vision. He wasn't even invited to the convention.
2: And that's when things took a turn that Butler wasn't expecting. McGuire informed Butler that his name used to be on the distinguished guest list, but when the list was taken to the White House for approval, Butler was removed by FDR
0: himself. McGuire said that the president was specific about the fact that he did not want Butler at that convention. It was all very
2: confusing. Butler had publicly endorsed President Roosevelt. He had even gone so far as to denounce his opponent, Hoover, and Hoover's treatment of the veterans.
0: He had a feeling that McGuire and Doyle were intentionally attempting to pit him against the Roosevelt administration, but their motives weren't clear. Butler continued to play into their game, asking questions to learn more.
2: McGuire said he had found a loophole to get Butler into the conference. He could attend as a delegate from Hawaii. Before the night was over, they'd make sure he had stage time to deliver his speech. It was all too much. Butler declined. McGuire and Doyle left and Butler didn't hear anything more for a few weeks. But then, McGuire and Doyle
0: returned, this time with a new plan they would have plants in the audience. Butler wouldn't have to win over a crowd if there are two or 300 veterans that would be urging him to speak. Butler told the men that the veterans he knew couldn't afford the trip to Chicago. And that's when they pulled out a bank book and told him not to worry, we will pay for that. According to Butler, the donation receipts in the book showed numbers
2: between $42,000 and $64,000 the equivalent of roughly $800,000 and $1.2 million today.
0: If Butler had learned one thing in his career, it was that men who were capable of making donations that large were the same men who fought against the veterans' bonuses. He knew there had to be an ulterior motive, but he couldn't figure out what it was.
2: That's when McGuire and Doyle handed him a piece of paper with the speech they wanted him to deliver. According to The Plot to Seize the White House by Jules Archer, the speech urged the American Legion Convention to adopt a resolution calling for the United States to return to the gold standard so that when veterans were paid the bonus promised to them, the money they received would not be worthless paper.
0: Butler didn't give an answer that afternoon. McGuire returned to Butler's home in August of 1933. In an intimate meeting with just the two of them, Butler demanded to know who was behind McGuire's elaborate plan. He understood the role he was supposed to play, but he had no intention of being a cog in someone else's machine.
2: That's when McGuire admitted that there were nine different backers, one of whom was McGuire's employer, Colonel Grayson M.P. Murphy. Murphy was a New York banker who had allegedly provided the $125,000 that started the American Legion back in 1919.
0: For Butler, the news was exactly what he feared. McGuire and the American Legion were tangled up in a mess of money from a wealthy banker. But McGuire insisted that there were no ulterior motives. McGuire's banker boss, Murphy, wanted to see the veterans cared for.
2: McGuire also hinted that compensation for himself and Butler would be healthy, but Butler was still not
0: convinced. The next time Butler and McGuire met was on September 1, 1933, 1st, 19331 month before the American Legion convention in Chicago. Butler was in New Jersey addressing a regional division of the American Legion, entirely separate from any conversation he and McGuire had in the past. Butler had no idea that McGuire would be present.
2: And he never expected McGuire to show up in Butler's hotel uninvited. But according to Butler, that's exactly what happened. McGuire tried to pressure Butler into making a decision. A frustrated Butler told McGuire that he was bluffing, that he didn't have any money. And that's when McGuire laid out $18,000 worth of cash on the hotel bed, roughly $350,000 today.
0: The general was certain the cash was dirty, tied to McGuire's scheme. Butler knew that every dollar bill in America had a unique number attached to it. If the numbers were traced and reported, and Butler was caught with them, he could end up in serious trouble. That is, of course, if McGuire really was the villain. McGuire
2: said the cash was from a large donation, He could get smaller bills if Butler preferred. It was all too convenient. Butler made up his mind. He told McGuire, once and for all, that he wanted no part in his
0: plan. And that's when McGuire felt compelled to reveal the name of a second donor, Robert Sterling Clark. Clark was a second lieutenant in the 9th Infantry in China. Butler had never met Clark, but he knew his nickname the millionaire lieutenant he was heir to the singer sewing machine fortune McGuire suggested that butler and clark should perhaps meet to discuss the proposition further maybe that might make butler feel more comfortable
2: later that week general butler received a call from clark they arranged a time to meet that sunday
0: when clark arrived on sunday it was just after lunch they got down to business almost immediately. Clark asked if Butler had read the speech they wanted him to deliver. He had, and he told Clark that it was actually quite gripping, to which Clark admitted that speech cost a lot of money.
2: Which meant Butler's instincts were right. Clearly, there were more people involved in the inner workings of this plan than first met the eye. But gripping didn't mean that Butler agreed with the content. He likened the script to a big business gimmick, an attempt to return economic power back to the wealthy banks and businessmen, which is exactly why he had already said no.
0: Clark slyly mentioned Butler's house. It had to have a decent mortgage that could easily be taken care of. Butler was aghast. He was being bribed under his own roof. Based on
2: Butler's testimony, what happened next is a little unclear. We know that Butler led Clark into his study, a room lined with banners, pennants, medals, and tokens of appreciation from the people he had fought for all of his life, the poor. He couldn't betray them. As for how the rest of the conversation went, Butler didn't mention exactly. We only know that whatever was said It led Clark to have a sudden change of heart.
0: Clark apparently phoned McGuire and told him, General Butler is not coming to the convention. He has given me his reasons, and they are excellent ones, and I apologize to him for my connection with it. I am not coming either. You can put this thing across. You have got $45,000. You have got enough money to go through with it.
2: It's a confirmed fact that Butler did not make an appearance at the Chicago convention in October of 1933, but the American Legion passed a resolution
0: to return to the
2: gold standard anyway.
0: According to Butler, McGuire paid him a visit afterward. McGuire wanted to tell Butler in person about the victory. Butler didn't see it as a win. The American
2: Legion failed to endorse the veterans bonus, That is what they needed to do to support veterans.
0: McGuire explained that it was a long game. Returning to the gold standard would eventually result in the veterans receiving bonuses that would be backed by true gold, not just paper. It's not clear how Butler responded.
2: But we do know that shortly thereafter, McGuire asked Butler to speak in Boston at a local soldier's dinner. He would be sent in a private train car for his trip and receive $1,000 for his time.
0: It was still a no. The next time the two met, it was by accident. The general was set to give a speech on behalf of a fellow veterans campaign for office in New York. When General Butler arrived, McGuire was already there.
2: McGuire heard that Butler was touring with the Veterans of Foreign Wars, an organization that he believed actually supported its veteran members, unlike the American Legion. And he was persistent.
0: He asked Butler again for his support. He wanted Butler to use his tour talk to soldiers about rallying to create a, quote, "...great big super organization to maintain democracy."
2: Maguire even offered to pay $750 for each speech that mentioned the idea of returning to the gold standard. Butler thought he had made it clear he would not be
0: bought. Then, in August of 1934, Butler received another phone call from Maguire, this time asking him if he was available to meet in Philadelphia. Over the past several months, Maguire had mailed Butler postcards from his travels around Europe. Despite seeing through the niceties, Butler agreed to meet. McGuire had allegedly spent time in Italy and Germany
2: analyzing the role that veterans play in government. For example, McGuire claimed that Mussolini had been made dictator because of his support for the veterans in Italy. McGuire saw that power and wanted to mimic it. He envisioned setting up an organization for all veterans to
0: support President Roosevelt. Butler stopped dead in his tracks. This time last year, Maguire was against Roosevelt. What had changed? According to Maguire, the president was willing to cooperate now. But Butler couldn't wrap his brain around it. If Maguire was
2: using Mussolini as inspiration, there was no way his plan stood for democracy. Butler asked if the idea was to intimidate the president.
0: Maguire insisted it wasn't. According to Butler, McGuire said, quote, Did it ever occur to you that the president is overworked? We might have an assistant president, somebody to take the blame. We have got the newspaper. We will start a campaign that the president's health is failing. Everybody can tell that by looking at him, and the dumb American people will fall for it in a second. Now, about this super organization, would you be interested in heading it?
2: Allegedly, McGuire also said that a bit of fascism was both necessary and proper in the United States. Fascism meaning a dictatorial state of government where the elite control society with strict class rules. He was implying that they would pay off the president with $3 million, an equivalent of nearly $60 billion today. Where that number came from is unclear. Maybe it came after a conversation with the president himself.
0: But what was clear was the intention. FDR would serve as nothing more than a symbol for the country with no real powers or duties. He would be a puppet to the banks. Coming up, Butler
2: takes his story public. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Check. In 1934, Gerald C. Maguire was trying to rope General Smedley Butler into a plan to create a veteran organization that would act as the puppet master to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidency. The equivalent of $60 billion would go straight into Roosevelt's pocket in exchange for unchecked power, meaning Maguire was staging a fascist takeover of American democracy.
0: Butler pretended to be interested in the plan, though he claimed he never supported it. He strung McGuire along so that he could do more reconnaissance. Details would be critical if Butler was going to stop them.
2: Then, Butler contacted an old friend, Paul French. French was a reporter at the Philadelphia Record. Together, they would take the story public. Butler detailed all of his encounters with McGuire to French. He even suggested that French meet with McGuire himself
0: to see what he could dig up. Days later, French published his first article, $3 million bid for fascist army bared. It put everything on the table, and of course, word spread to powerful circles.
2: On a cold, dry November morning in 1934, Butler was called to testify in front of the McCormick-Dickstein Committee about rumors of a fascist takeover. He entered with confidence. His normally hunched shoulders were held high.
0: This group, officially called the Special Committee of Un-American Activities, was created in 1934 for members of the House of Representatives to investigate communist and fascist-related activities. In 1938, the committee was formally renamed the House Un-American Activities Committee.
2: It isn't certain how the committee knew of Butler's involvement with McGuire, but Butler relayed most of the information that we've just covered. He also admitted that he told French about his meetings with McGuire and Doyle. Interestingly, however, Butler told the committee that he was never sure if the American Legion actually
0: had the intention of replacing the president, or if it was all talk. The next person to testify was French. He claimed that he had met with McGuire in September of 1934, per Butler's request. According to
2: French's testimony, McGuire told him, quote, "...we need a fascist government in this country to save the nation from the communists who want to tear it down and wreck all that we have built in America." The only men who have patriotism to do it are the soldiers, and Smedley Butler is the ideal leader. He could organize one million men overnight.
0: But when McGuire was called to testify, he told a much different story. He told the committee that yes, he had met with Butler on multiple occasions, but everything that Butler claimed was not true.
2: Interestingly enough, however, McGuire's timeline lined up almost exactly with Butler's story. There were slight differences. A meeting that Butler implied was very long, McGuire said lasted only 20 minutes. McGuire sent
0: postcards, but not with an agenda in mind. Conveniently, McGuire couldn't quite remember certain aspects of Butler's testimony. And the details that he could remember differed just enough from Butler's testimony that he could deny any implication that he was involved in a fascist plot. It became a game
2: of he said, he said, without concrete evidence to determine which party
0: was telling the truth. McGuire claimed that he wanted Butler to run for the commander of the American Legion and nothing more. That was the reason for his visits.
2: McGuire also said that he never intended to create a committee for the sound dollar, a group of people in support of returning to the gold standard. And if Butler were to have helped the American Legion in any way, of course he would have been compensated. But McGuire never offered unreasonable sums, nor did he imply the American Legion had financial backing with political interests.
0: During his testimony, however, Maguire was asked to locate records of a complex financial exchange between himself and an attorney. At some point, Maguire cashed $30,000 that he inexplicably kept on his person. Maguire claimed the money was given to him for personal reasons and some of what was intended for the attorney. He had no records to back this up.
2: The committee continued calling more witnesses. the investigation quickly came to a halt.
0: Just two days after Butler's testimony, on the morning of November 20th, 1934, the committee released an official statement saying that they found no evidence to justify further action.
2: The statement read, this committee has had no evidence before it that would in the slightest degree warrant calling before it such men as John W. Davis, General Hugh Johnson, General Harbord, Thomas W. Lamont, Admiral Sims, or Hanford McNider.
0: Oddly enough, these names had never been mentioned in anyone's testimony, which suggested that there was more to the story than what was made public.
2: It also stated the committee will not take cognizance of names brought into the testimony which constitute more hearsay. This committee is not concerned with premature newspaper accounts, especially when given and published prior to the taking of the testimony.
0: And that's how the official investigation ended. It didn't matter that the committee continued to conduct more research until 1935. It was enough for the media and the public to turn on Butler. They claimed he was trying to instigate a hoax, that he was a fraud. But was he?
2: In the final 1935 report from Congress, they implied that perhaps Butler might have been onto something after all. They uncovered evidence that there was indeed a plan, but no proof that it was being pursued or executed.
0: What's suspicious is that there were no further actions taken by the government to explore this case further. Instead, it just went away. This week... We followed the case as it was presented to the public.
2: McGuire insists that he always supported President Roosevelt and had no ill will or intentions against him.
0: But the level of detail in
2: Butler's accounts is hard to ignore. Next week, we'll continue our investigation by analyzing the reports from Congress that continued months after Butler's initial testimony, reports that plainly acknowledge a fascist plot.
0: Then we'll assess our one and only conspiracy theory that there was a planned coup d'etat to overthrow President Roosevelt, and the U.S. did everything they could to cover it up.
2: We'll examine that theory through the lens of its three main narratives. Number one, the McCormick Dickstein Committee was actually a close conspirator in the plot to overthrow
0: Roosevelt. Number two, Key points were omitted from Butler's published testimony that were vital in understanding the fascist plot.
2: Number three, wealthy bankers were in on the plot to overthrow FDR. Like for instance, Prescott Bush, George W. Bush's grandfather.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify.
2: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free, from your phone, desktop, or
0: smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember,
2: the truth isn't always the best story.
0: And the official story isn't always the truth.
2: Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Jenna Lennon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.